Hey guys, before we continue, I wanted to say if you also want to start a podcast of your own, I have a great recommendation for you and it is called Anchor. So why Anchor? It's free, it has easy tools to help you get started and it will distribute your podcast for you. And the best part is, you can make money while doing what you love. Basically, it has everything you need. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started now. Let's proceed to the awesomeness. Yeah, uh, my name is Brandon Hampton. Um, I'm actually not a Calvinist, though. I understand why we may have gotten that mixed up. I oftentimes have conversations with our buddy uh, Jesse, who is a Calvinist. I'm actually a uh, more of a universalist. Oh, yeah. So, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's okay. We're always having conversations. It's easy to, to get those switched up uh, since we're the ones usually bumping heads the most. <laughs> But, but I'm a universalist Christian, and um, yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, universalist Christian, I'm a libertarian, and I own my own company. Uh, I'm out of California. Uh, I make knives out here. My company is called Melio Knives, and I mostly do culinary stuff. And yeah, that's a little bit about who I am. Yeah. So for me, I've been a Christian all my life and I was baptized Catholic. Uh, I come from a Mexican Italian background. So um, pretty strict Catholic uh, grandparents. After that, my mother um, brought us into just more of the Protestant style of churches in Southern California. They all call themselves non-denominational, but they, they aren't They're They're more Protestant style. Um, so there you have the Calvary chapels and North Coast and stuff like that where I'm located. And it's the very typical, you got to say the sinner's prayer, um, you got to show repentance, and that's how you get into heaven. And I even went to a Christian school uh, for a little while, and I ended up, um, my first official job out of high school was uh, working at a Christian bookstore. And so I was very much immersed in different types of Christians. And there you have your, your Calvinists and your Lutherans and Presbyterians and all those different types. Um, But it was nice because I got to meet a lot of very well-informed people and they were very strict with what types of Bibles they read, which types of uh, study guides were beneficial, not beneficial. You have the very strict people saying, oh, the English Standard Version is an excellent translation, but the NLT version is a total paraphrase. You should totally throw it out because it says these few things incorrectly. And so I was really encouraged to uh, be a student and to study. And I always had the same nagging questions in my mind about, okay, well, if you have to do this thing to be saved, why would God create people who he knew wouldn't be saved? And why would he be okay condemning people who would never hear his message? And for me, I simply pushed those questions to the back of my mind. And I would tell myself, that's not really what the message is about. And I, I wouldn't say that it's <clears throat> not what the message is about now. I would say that those are maybe not the biggest parts of the faith, 
but they're still important. And um, I ended up um, continuing to be a Christian, but having a hard time um, when it came to those questions. And I didn't really find any answers. And I spent a lot of time actually outside of uh, the church. And mostly it was a timing thing and I didn't feel intellectually stimulated by the people that went to church in my area. So uh, I just didn't go for a number of years. I felt a little burnt out maybe with uh, the type of Christians I was running into, not with the faith, but um, just with the actual people themselves. And so uh, I didn't go for a while and it was probably years. And I still liked the intellectual aspect of things. I ended up getting a, um, a bachelor's degree in history, at, uh, you know, and I spent some time in Rome studying there and I went to law school for a while. And so I was, I've always been academically inclined, but I just didn't feel fed when I went to churches. And I recently got married. So that's uh, what's going on in my life. And it's been about a year and a half since we've been going to our current church. And our current church is a Methodist church. Um, it's in uh, Escondido, in Southern California. It's called Rise. And one of the things that drew me to it was the pastor is very much intellectual. And so he would have us read theological books or books on humanity, philosophy, things like that. So we've read some uh, Carl Jung, read on post-colonial uh, uh, Christian theology. We, we've done some some really interesting books, but we really like to dive into into theology. And one of the books that really struck me was uh, Dr. David Bentley Hart's All Shall Be Saved. And he is a universalist, or at least that book is making the case uh, for universalists. And I loved it. I feel like it answered so many questions I had about Christianity. It, it talks about how the Bible does not constantly tell us that we're doomed for an eternity of hell forever. It just doesn't. And there's a few passages that I've had pushback um, from with, uh, with Jesse, our, our Calvinist friend. And uh, in those two passages that we brought up, um, it says that Certain people will go to the lake of fire, and it's usually translated forever or for eternity. Um, but if you actually look at the Greek word being used for forever or eternity, it's actually aeonius, which is a derivative of eon, meaning for an age. So it's not saying we're going to burn forever. It's saying we're going to burn for an age, which has a lot less finality to it. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be Christians and we shouldn't repent and we shouldn't live these good lives, because I think more than anything, I've always felt like my faith directed me towards a father figure that wanted the best for me. And I see that in his actions. When we look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see someone who is trying to guide us to a happier life. We see somebody who is trying to give us advice. And when I see things like Proverbs, I don't see a huge dis, you know, difference between Proverbs and Marcus Aurelius. Like those go hand in hand as books of wisdom and good teachings. 
And I think that's what the book is supposed to be, is a book of wisdom and a book of teaching. And I, I think that God is always trying to have us follow his rules for our own benefit. Now, that's not to say you can't find, um, you know, certain things that maybe in a modern context would be problematic. Um, definitely, I've had atheist friends tell me, well, what about slavery that's condoned in the Old Testament? But as a history major, I have to look at things in the zeitgeist. And at that time, slavery was a reality. So putting laws around that, to me, makes sense at the time. Obviously, today, we can choose to take that with us or discard it. I think most of us would agree that we can discard that portion is no longer uh, as useful as it once was. Um, so we take the things that are useful and discard the things that aren't. And getting back to the universalist aspect of things, one of the things that it's done for me is it's removed a lot of fear. So if I don't believe in God because I'm afraid of hell, then it gives me the freedom to believe and love God because I want to, and because I know he wants me to love him like he loves me. So now it's, it's not a relationship based on fear. Think of, think of why do you love your father? Do you love your father because you don't want him to spank you? Yeah, it, that's not really why you love him. You love him because he does good things for you and, and wants the best for you and he cares about you. That's, to me, the same uh, relationship I find myself with God. But I understand that I am fortunate and that I was raised with a great father. So not everybody has that same point of view. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess then uh, you, you've uh, set a standard or your own personal standard as to what kind of God uh, God is, you know, and and one of that is that he wouldn't actually uh, put you in hell for all eternity for a lifetime of or maybe just a short 100 years of sin. Is that the, one of the cases as to why you would assume that an all-loving God would be more just than that and eon would suffice as uh an answer or a punishment for what could be what we would deserve as sinful sin, uh, sinful people on earth on our lifetime well and like the tough thing is is trying to figure out what hell would be right so so some people try to figure out well hell is a separation from god so that's that's a hypothesis that is out there well, and if that's true, then maybe we die and we go to the eternal waiting room and we haven't connected with God yet. And if you're an atheist who says, I will not go with God, it's like, well, then maybe you just are in hell until you choose to go with God. Maybe that's maybe that's the time served. Um, maybe, I mean, there's so many different ways we can interpret this because there's not a lot written about what happens to those who go to hell. Like I said, there's only a few passages, but I think that the reason why um, it's become such a part of the dogma of the Christian faith is because it's a useful tool in governance. And as a history major, well, that's what I see it being used as. It's Christianity is not a useful religion to a leader if you tell everybody God loves you and these are all guidelines for your benefits. So follow them because you should. No one's going to follow you. 
you have to tell people you are going to burn an eternity unless you go and fight for the holy lands and in my wars and i'm ordained by god and thus you must follow me it's all uh, bastardization of the faith um in an attempt to gain power so everything can be corrupted when you do enough mental gymnastics and that's i think the biggest victim of uh you know the the church has been the teachings and i oftentimes like you were saying about me uh, having an idea of who god is i think we're called in the bible often to try to find the heart of god and i try to understand his ways and his motivations and and his emotions and and what he loves and what he doesn't and when i look at the way that jesus was i try to obviously individual scriptures are important and we like to pick them apart with a microscope but i also like to look at the macro view of things and for jesus he does not like the church authority as a whole you know there aren't a lot of stories about the good pharisees there just aren't and so for me something i i have a really hard time with our church leaders because they're held to a very high standard and we know this. And so when you get these church leaders saying, well, I know what's right, I go, Ooh, that is very dangerous, very, very dangerous ground to be walking on. Cause I don't know that I could tell you as much studying as I do. I don't know that I could tell someone else what's right. I can tell people what I'm called to believe. I can tell people what makes the most sense to me. Um, but I hope if I'm doing things correctly and believing in the way that God wants me to believe that my life reflects it and other people can ask me questions about it and they can, um, come to the same conclusions. If my reasoning is sound of their own volition, I'm not really, I'm not really much for, for going out and condemning people. I am absolutely about trying to help people. Just like uh, if I saw you and you were my neighbor and I saw you, you know, mowing your lawn with a weed whacker, I'd go out and say, hey, I have a lawnmower if that would help. And if you told me, no, I'm going to weed whack it. It's OK. You you do it the way you're doing it. Uh, if you want help, I'm here. I'm always I'm always available. And if I'm weed whacking my lawn, I hope that my neighbor would come over and tell me, hey, there might be a better way to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess then the, one, one of my questions would be, uh, why did Jesus have to um, be sacrificed if hell was always going to be just a thousand years or, or an eon? You know, it seems unnecessary in order for him to actually uh, uh, make this ultimate sacrifice that would uh, be the one of the most is is the focus of reality itself and for us human beings so i just look at the uh the crucifixion and resurrection of christ in a different context so for me the way i look at it as uh man sinned and we were separated from god and god sent his son and he died to save us and he did and it's much less complicated than I think most people make it. It's not like, well, and you got to do all these steps. It's like, well, we're saved. And we know that God is eternal. And we know that he conquers evil. So he came and he saved us. And it happened. And 
we're all safe now. And we know in the Bible it says that like there will be a time when evil is conquered. So how does that make sense if evil is conquered, but somehow, somewhere, there's this like lake of fire that's just like burning and people are suffering forever? Like that doesn't make any sense. Well, it, if it, well, yeah, uh, that's in the context of like hell being something that uh, under the rule of the the devil or something, but. Uh, for most Christians, hell is the wrath of God itself. You know, it's God's justice. But but wouldn't you still categorize pain and suffering as an evil? Well, if it was ju a, a ju justice, then I wouldn't categorize it in that way if it was God's justice. Well, and again, that goes into your point of view when it comes to those who would never know that uh, that anything about the Bible or God. So then you're looking at not really a just pain and destruction. You're looking at a, a pain and destruction wreaked on people out of ignorance. I would categorize that as evil. So like, it doesn't make sense. And it also says in the Bible that the body of Christ, the whole like mankind will be restored. It talks about us coming together. There's this sense of completion. There's some finality there. That doesn't make sense if like, well, except for those people that you loved in life, yeah, they're just gonna suffer for eternity, but we're complete over here. That's, it doesn't fit. And for me, I think that I'm never gonna solve all of the, all, I'm never gonna find all of the question, questions and get all of the answers to everything I have. But to me, it's about um, like on a video game where you've got the fog of war and you're trying to clear out sections of the map, make it visible. I think for me, I had a very, very big patch of fog of war and that all came down to like, why would, why would God put an expiration date on his love and acceptance? Why would God doom people, uh, you know, knowingly what, what, this is a huge fog of war patch. And then it goes, oh, well, he didn't, he actually has a plan for them. Like, oh, cool. Opens that all up. But, well, I still got these questions and stuff, but this makes a lot more sense than this idea of, no he created us and some are going to hell and that's just the way it is and also god's just like how does that how does that make sense and then you also get into these really tough um utilitarian kind of questions like well okay if if we know that people go to hell for not doing the thing okay whatever the thing is is there a certain age before they can do the thing. And if there is an age, no matter when it is, then are you justified in killing every baby before they reach that age? Because then you're you're at a net positive for uh, for heavenly acceptance. True. Like that doesn't make any sense. That I agree. that's awful. It would be and, I, I, and, technically it is. It would be justified in, in that context. Right? <laughs> Every abortion's another entrance into heaven. Like that's, and and that's not to say that I have a very very strong stance on abortion. I, I went to like like I said, I spent some time in law school, and I, I think that's a heavy question. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just I just don't because you could even make because you could even make the statement the same for killing two year old babies, even if you're unwilling to say from a legal standpoint that before they're born, they're, they're a person, you can still say, well, then two years, then two days old, they, they can't decide. 
If we kill every baby at two days old, they get into heaven. Therefore, it is it is a positive thing. And I don't. Well, so that, that was what was interesting about David Bentley Hart's uh, book for me is in the very beginning, I was very dismissive of it. I thought universalism, oh, we're going to do some hippie woo woo, everybody just peace and love. And the first thing he talks about is how the original Greek Christians, they were, there was a ton of them who were universalists. And the reason for this is because they spoke and understood Greek. So they read it in its original intended form. And we're like, yeah, obviously this means that Jesus died and now we're saved. Like we did it. Good news, everybody, you know? <laughs> so I, I think that has to do with what God wants us to do with this life we're living now. So I, I think another problem that happens when you have this idea of if we don't live the right way, we go to hell is people turn this life into a bit of a waiting room. They go, well, heaven's going to be amazing. And whatever we do here is nothing. It's like, that's not, that was never the intention. God has given us this gift, this, this short life in comparison to eternity. And we are mandated to do the best we can with it, with such a precious thing however long we have. And it can be short, it can be terrible, it can have ups and downs, but it's got so much to it. There's so much to experience. And I'm, I'm wanting to live this life that I've been given and raise my daughter and I've got a son on the way. And I want them to know that they can be a positive influence on the world and that they can fight injustice and poverty and they can be better people. Like, I think this is what we're called to do. And when you look at like the original translations of when uh, Jesus was saying uh, to the disciples, I want you to be fishermen of men. He, he was asking them to tear down like the current structures politically to bring up a better way of life. He's, he's asking for people to, to really just do better in everything. And th there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that's such a great message to be able to go throughout a world just plagued with chaos and tyranny and death and just wanton destruction and say, there's more to life. You have a father who loves you and, and you are a gift and, and be, be the salt of the earth go out and make this world beautiful because of the things and the gifts that you've been given like that positivity that I think that's amazing and, and so beautiful. And that's what I see in, in my daughter when, you know, when she just wants to just spread goodness. And I think that there's a natural affinity for that perhaps in, in humanity and it probably gets jaded as we live life and are, beaten down by the realities that we find ourselves in. And I think God and Jesus's message is asking us to be brave and to continue to have that uh, indomitable optimism and share just how positive life can be and what awaits us and why we're here it's it's not a message of sadness at all. And that's why I don't think I can really stand this idea that, uh, you know, God is waiting to just, you know, send us into the fire. Like that's not God's message. God's message has always been, I love you. I'm going to embrace you. 
You are a part of me. You're my creation. You're my children. And and um, I guess that how do you solve the the problem of evil? You know, theodicy. In your perspective, I guess you presented that um, this life was actually intended by God for a certain purpose. You know, this suffering and the, and that that's why we're not already in heaven. Because if if God wanted to allow all of us to go to heaven, then we would go to heaven. You know. So why all the why is is it all necessary? And why do we have to like live two thousand years after Christ died and save all of us? That's it. That's an excellent question. I, I think that for me goes into trying to understand God's purpose in creating us, and I feel like that one is such a tough one. I can speculate as to why God created us. I think for me. I, uh, I was a musician for a lot of years, and I always think about how a symphonic piece that was just nothing but harmony is actually quite dull and boring. You need a dynamic range of music to really be engaging and enjoyable. Um, and so I think maybe God was giving us an experience um, by giving us this short time that feels so long to so many, but given eternity or what timelessness might feel like, perhaps we'll look back on, on this in heaven and long for the days when we could feel pain and sadness as, uh, you know, a moment of experience, if nothing more. Uh, and I, I know that there are people who live lives full of pain. And I think my point of view is tough for them because they see so much sadness in the world. Like, why would God create pain? Because you think he wanted me to experience some sadness. But I, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I view it in that way. And I always think back to my, uh, my dear, my, uh, my aunt. She lost her only son, my cousin, who had cerebral palsy for all of his life and, and then died when he was in his mid-20s. And it's her only son. And her point of view as a very staunch Catholic was God didn't take my son away. He gave me 27 years and it was a gift. And I think that is a hard point of view to impose on someone. And I will never tell someone who lost a child or who's suffered uh, rape or, or assault, oh, oh, God gave you you know, you know, an experience. I'll, I'll just tell them I, I understand that I don't understand, <laughs> you know, because it's hard to, you know, I can't be empathetic to everything. Uh, I haven't experienced everything, but I can, I can tell them that I know God's purpose is not to just cause you needless pain. And I hope that we're able to see um, growth and benefit from the things that we've been doing. Yeah, I guess that one of one of the things that you could answer is that um, God's answer to Job, when um, Job was experiencing this suffering, was that um, you know, um, were you there when I created the universe and and you know, like when I created this, these awesome creatures and stuff, it, it like it emphasizes God's omniscience and what 
the these uh, experiences that we have actually could actually mean for in a greater and grander scheme that we we just don't know, and so um, I, it it is an appeal to like authority, but if it's uh, if that authority is God, then that would be worth it, I guess. Yeah, and I I think studying so many different um, religions and histories and stuff, I've definitely. Uh, uh, oh, I got somebody in my shop. Can I just one second? Your mic got turned way down again. Yeah. So you 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 you've been studying um, about uh, theology and uh, the Bible, and um, what has the uh, these taught you in? in terms of wisdom and why there is evil oh oh well i think oh to get back to the point i was saying before though is, is studying all those different types of theologies we find um simple religions that are easy to see the inherent flaws in them or discongruities or or the very human characteristics of them uh, Greek theology is a great example of that. You know, we see that every every myth is another example of the soap opera that is Zeus impregnating another another woman. And there's no real message for the betterment of man. It's purely entertainment around the hearth. And we wouldn't be arguing, I don't think, about the philosophy of our religions if we hadn't been boiling them down to the most important ones. You know, we can look at uh, Hanuman, we can look at Quetzalcoatl, we can look at these uh, examples of, okay, well, these are obviously entertaining stories and we don't have to believe in, you know, the, the monkey king of China. Like that's not a real religion that we're trying to say is, is a path to betterment, but, the fact that the Bible has been around with us so long and is, you know, like you said, we're, we're trying to figure out very complex theories. Like, is this an appeal to authority? Are we looking at logical fallacies? How many thousands of years ago was this written? And we're having these very detailed conversations. Like, you wouldn't even begin to have that conversation with, uh, you know, anything out of, uh, you know, Cure of Troy or uh, any other books about, you know, Greek theology or Roman mythology, they're, they're so obviously not real guides to life. And so that's not an airtight argument by any means. But again, sometimes I like to take a macro approach at things as well. Mm -hmm. Well, um, in terms of like, for example, the differences between, let's say, a Calvinist, Arminian or Evangelical or someone who's a universalist like you, um, Here's what I think, though, in terms of like behavioral uh, studies, like in psychology, uh, there's really one thing that a behavioral uh, psychologist could see, which is that the outcome or or someone's behavior in their life, you know, of, of, they don't really care about what happens inside. Basically, they just study um, what's going on and what do they do, what how, what is what's what impact does it make in their own actions as a result. 
And so, in terms of like, if I were to be a universalist, you know, and I would to be to I were to live my life being happy and seeing God's purpose in everything and treating my neighbor not not as someone who's a sinner and is going to hell if if not if not gonna change, but I'm just um uh presenting Christ's uh, uh Christ likeness in my own life, and He can see this light, you know, this salt that's beautiful. And it, you compare it to someone who's a Calvinist, evangelical, who, who's, uh, who is, whose intention is, who has like a secret agenda to save someone so that they won't go to hell, you know? And so they have this sort of ingenuine, um, uh, ingenuine uh, reasons as to why they would feel, they would want to be a better person or a Christian because, oh, if they see me do something wrong, they might not get saved and it might be my fault they go to hell or something. So in this case, it, it it seems to me it's better to be to be someone who has, I guess, a certain uh, real, genuine uh, love of Christ deep inside your heart. And whatever the case, maybe where you're, where my, I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. But the real thing is that um, my the love that is happening within me, it's something that's real, and I'm sharing it to the world because I want it to, and not because of some race that I'm trying to to make or to to win, you know, not trying to like save every million uh, be, be person, but just serving my own purpose as a human being that uh, that glorifies God in everything I do. I think that would be a lot better, you know. And it's tough for me because. And maybe this goes back to some of my initial reasonings behind it. Uh, I would see my grandmother, who is a staunch Catholic, and I have many problems with the Catholic faith, but I still have a hard time looking at her who loves Jesus so much and saying, no, 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 but she didn't get everything right. It's like, no, she got she got most everything right. So so what's what's God's gray area if he's going to send some to hell and some not? This makes so much more sense that he he wants us to live good lives where we, where we love each other. And eventually we will all bow down before the throne because after we die, we'll see. Like, obviously, God is there. He's real. And he is as powerful as he's always told us. And he also saved us. So we accept you because you're here. Once we die, we'll see that. It's kind of like uh, we're all on this lost island. And it's like, well, what if I don't believe that the helicopter's here? The helicopter will land and ask you to come aboard. <laughs> then you'll be saved. Like, <laughs> yeah, true, true. I guess then the um, it, there, it also like challenges God's own providence. You know, for example, if um, at the end, you know, in a Calvinist perspective, if someone's going to going to hell, it's not it's it's not really because they chose to, but because God wanted them to. This is the outcome that God wanted to in the end you know for someone to go to hell in a calvinist perspective but they could uh, place the blame in like the human realm or something but ultimately in the grand scheme of things it was god's um uh own desire or like he just uh in the end this is the outcome that god wanted to to occur so it would. This is. This is. I guess really, really hard to comprehend, and especially if, if like, um, it, then if if God is like all perfect and all knowing, then then why did evil arise from His creation, and why did was it necessary or something? 
you know, and why did it have to occur? And so I, and, and then when, when we look at this, I, I, I could answer it in a way that, that there might be like a pro and a con. Like for example, um, um, in order for us to have free will, we, we have to choose whether to follow God or not. So I guess that's, that's so, some sort of a price we have, to, uh, that has to be paid in order for us to, to actually be, be free entities that are not robotic. And, and I guess the, for me, like, um, the price uh, that the, 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 the thing that we bought, that was bought for was so much worth it. And, and I don't think that, um, and I think that God's justice will ultimately be so perfect that uh, we have we would have no reason to blame him whatsoever, whatever the outcome. So uh, to me, like whether or not there is a hell or there isn't, to me, I just uh, believe that God is this. Uh, the God loves me so much that whatever the outcome he 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 makes or decides. I just trust this and I have, I have faith in it. That ultimately that's how I think we could all uh, as Christians unite and and just uh follow Christ and um what and how he wanted us to live to be to be Christ-like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I agree. <laughs> and also if you look at the the universe as eventually going to bring all of us together in heaven and in paradise with God, then any claims that God is unjust really isn't true because you could think of it as uh, if, if you've ever had a small child and put them in the water and they don't know how to swim and they, and they try for a while and then you take them out and then you go, well, you were letting your child drown. It's like, well, I, I pulled them out. It's like, well, yeah, but for that time, it was very real to them. But it wasn't real. They, I get that the child might not have known that at the time. And you can have differences of opinion about like whether you should let a child swim that long or if the water was a little cold. But the fact of the matter is, no, I didn't let my child drown. I, I took the child out. So even if you had a life here on this planet and it was a tough life or a very hard life, you lived through a holocaust and there was much suffering. And then God pulls you out of that after 80 years and you go to eternity of paradise. I don't know. It's hard for me to quantify how terrible 80 years of experience in comparison to an eternity of paradise is him being a totally malicious and benign God that just wants destruction. I feel like he gave you a a taste. Yeah. And, um, one thing, though, I guess, is that um, uh, when we talk about um, our beliefs and and re- religious or spiritual, I guess this also correlates with um, our views and how we act as citizens or just people and living on this earth. You know, and uh, it's a pluralistic world. We have different worldviews, but I guess then that um, our beliefs also. Uh, to, uh, I guess are the foundations as to what our moral values are, and especially how we we act is, uh, and decide in political matters. So, um, well, you mentioned you were a, a libertarian, my friend. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm, uh, can you? Uh, well, so I'm very. That? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in my studies of history, often what guides things are money. 
you know, we're oftentimes thinking about, okay, well, why would this event have occurred? Usually you can follow the money and you can figure it out. Um, so I really wanted to study economics while I was studying history. And my favorite economist is uh, Friedrich Hayek and uh, Ludwig von Mises, and they're Austrian economists. And um, I would say that they're kind of the starting point for most people that go down the libertarian path. I'm not as big of a fan of Anne Rand. I think she makes a big deal about, um, oh, well, you have to be this, uh, you know, successful person and determination and, you know, forget everybody else. That's not really what I'm, um, what I'm interested. I, I actually think that libertarianism probably goes along with my religion quite well. And that I think that most humans are very fallible. And when we give them power, they tend to abuse it. So if, if every time you give me authority over my neighbor, I abuse that power, well, the right thing to do is never let me get authority over my neighbor. Then I won't abuse them. And so when we look at the government, um, I think we're safe to say that most people like being um, spied on less. I think we'd like to spend less money bombing people we don't know. I think we'd like more privacy and to be left alone if we could. Um, so for these reasons, I think libertarianism is actually a bigger and easier, it's an easier sell than I think most people would care to admit. Um, but I think that people get hung up on certain morality things because they want people to do what they think is right. And so an example of that is like gay marriage. It's like, well, I have, a, I have uh, you know, belief that gay marriage is bad, so you shouldn't be able to, to marry a gay partner. Well, why are you trying to tell someone else what they can do? Just like how I am not Jewish, but I don't view a Jewish marriage as illegitimate. It's their marriage. I, like, why would I care what they did? And marriage is a religious institution. And I realize there's tax benefits and stuff to go on with it and property rights. And for that reason, I think there should definitely be laws around unions, civil unions, but I don't think there should be legal marriages any more than there should be legal baptisms or legal communion. I mean, why? I would, I would hate if at my daughter's baptism, there was a government employee there ready to certify that it was a legitimate baptism. Get out of here. I don't need you here. It's me, my daughter and God. Like I don't, kick rocks. So I think that for these reasons, I think that the government just doesn't need to be there for most things. Things that the government I do like are firefighters, like basic police forces. Um, I like roads. They don't do a great job at them, but would be better off with roads than without. Um, you know, I'm not advocating for full anarchy. And I think that's what most people think libertarianism is. Like, oh, you like no government. I like less government. Just the government should be there to ensure the market is free and fair. As long as we can have good commerce, the government's doing its job and it doesn't need to do more than that. And what we see, especially in the U.S., is a huge NSA budget, a huge CIA budget, a huge military budget. And because it gets so big and then we're like, well, we need to block every potential threat so they listen to our phone calls. They try to govern how we live our lives and I just want to be left alone. Let me defend my family. Like, let me have my guns. Gay, gay people should get married. 
if people want to smoke marijuana, that's their decision. Like, just leave people alone, let them worship the religion of their choice, and freedom should be the number one thing. And I think Republicans are the ones who are, I think both sides, Republicans and Democrats are both the ones to say that their side is the side for freedom, but both sides want to tell the other, other side what to do. They want to block guns, they want to block religion, they want to block... Uh, just, you know, whether or not people are transgender, like let people do whatever the heck they want to do. And I think libertarians are the true freedom party where they're like, look, man, as long as what you're doing doesn't hurt me, have at it, have a ball. Just don't tax me. Okay. You mentioned a, a, a town or, or like you prefer some, a, a town with, or a, a society with poli a police force and a, let's say a, a fireman. That the, the, these are institution, uh, political institutions or government institutions that protect, for example, the innocent or the the citizens who need protecting. But when we talk about, for example, abortion, you know, um, I I would uh, want to I would want to live in a society where I would actually the government would actually intervene in protecting me while I was a fetus, and because I I I was going to live, you know. And so when we talk about this, it's a, it's very subjective as to what uh, what what things the government should intervene in and what the government shouldn't intervene in. Like for example, terrorism or or corruption, you know, and that's why um, these informa government information gathering is very uh, essential in order for these to be effective. And so um, I guess that how do you draw the line? when it comes to where the government should be limited to? Yeah, so I guess my easy cop-out on that is I don't think we're gonna choose any government that's less powerful than the one we have right now. Um, a very good book is uh, Duncan's Storm Before the Storm, and it talks about the uh, Roman Empire before Julius was on the scene. It's all about the Gracchi brothers and Marius and the populace. And I, I think the thing that it really shows to me is people always want more of everything. And so what you have is the left and the right are both sitting here saying, well, I think we need to have some more social reform. So give me more authority and I'll give you the social reform like healthcare and education and those types of things. And then the Republicans on the other side are saying, I'm going to give you more military and safety and so you need to give me more power because I'm going to protect you from the terrorists. And then every year they get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then they're fighting each other over who has the most government control. And I'm the one saying, I just want to back off a little bit. I'm not even saying like, this is my perfect society. I'm saying that at this rate, we end up with a dictator because at some point the government has so much power. It listens to all of our phone calls. It governs our health. It governs our roads. It has a massive military police force that is currently in all of our civilian cities and populations. It gets to the point where, well, what would our recourse be? That's why they want to take away uh, the ability to own firearms. That's why they want to take away freedom of speech and and uh, you know limit what people can say online. And we already see that like the independent fact checkers are oftentimes very biased. And again, this is once you give somebody a bit of control they tend to abuse it. So I'm just saying, pull back on all that. Have less fact checking. Let everybody put their dumb ideas into the marketplace of ideas. I can read, 
I know which one's terrible. If, if I have somebody in front of me telling me, hey, you should be a Nazi and hate Jews, I don't need someone to, like, to block me from that idea. I know not to be a Nazi because I've read books and I will teach my child that that's wrong as well. Like it, and I think people are oftentimes saying, well, you need to protect other people from seeing these ideas. And it's very patronizing because their point of view is, well, other people are dumber than you and I. Who are these people we're protecting by limiting us? That doesn't make any sense to me. It's the same rationale behind the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment protects our rights to bear firearms. And I say, okay, well, I want a firearm then, but I live in California, so I can't have a suppressor. I can't have a forward pistol grip. I can't have a collapsible buttstock. I can't have uh, a, a gun with a high uh, capacity magazine. I need to use a bullet button to change out the, the magazine. I need to disassemble the firearm in order to change out the magazine. And all of this is done in an attempt to prevent regular civilians from owning firearms. This is a way to disarm us piece by piece. And if you look back to like the, the Mulford Act, which was the beginning of gun control in California, you can see that it all comes down to the Black Panthers using their firearms in public to prevent police brutality. And it was working, which is why the government took that right away. We need to fight for those rights back because an armed society is not held hostage to a military government that is, that is being able to dictate its own terms on its people. When black people were marching in force with guns around police officers as they were arresting black people, they were very nice to those black people, got them in the cars and made their way out of town because, because they were afraid of the people. And they should be. The people are the ones who give the police their mandate. And if the police break that contract, that social contract with the people, the people have every right to rise up against the police. But if the people are disarmed, then what's their recourse? And it's interesting to me that um, as much as Democrat and liberal people are against police brutality and police overreach, they are also the ones most adamantly opposed to personal firearm use, which is the solution for that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess then that um, when we talk about um, the government like censoring stuff or like protecting what the uh, citizens should know and not know, I guess then we have to actually, I, th I think both sides from right, right or left would agree that more education, better education for all citizens is the best course that, that, that a, any government can take in order to to uh, and I guess that uh, um, uh, with a more educated uh, educated population, there would be less uh, uh, censorship would be less necessary, as you have said. You know that um, I myself I, I know what uh, what anti-Semitism is. I know what fake news is because I am educated. But but with with a with a population with less and less education, I it would be I think it would be necessary for censorships to occur so I don't see I don't see that world and let me qualify that we have never lived in a time of more um, literacy we've never lived in a time where 
more people as a percentage knew what was going on in the world. So to say that we have less education, I have to ask, by what standard are you saying that we have less education? If you go back to, you know, the St. Bartholomew Day massacre, and you see Protestants and Catholics killing each other in the streets, we can justify that by saying none of them even had a second degree education, a second grade education, I should say. Their literacy levels were next to none, which is why they needed their priests or church leaders to read these books to them. This is an age at that time of, of just absolute ignorance. We don't live in that age. We have cell phones you know, in the hands of goat herders. This is amazing. We live in a world where education is at our fingertips. We're at an unbridled educational point in our history. So to say, well, this is the, this is the age when we need censorship. I say, no, this is the age when we need all the ideas. Give them all out. My, my daughter is not held hostage to, to the same standard that I was when my father would say, go look it up in the encyclopedia. She can literally hold up her phone and ask it questions and get immediate answers to any questions she may have. This is, this is amazing. We have, we have children in Africa who, as soon as they're able to get access to the internet, are building solar power and wind power and getting electricity to these remote locations. This is incredible. I'm fascinated at this point in our history. And I, I do not look at this in a pessimistic light. I am, I am very optimistic about yeah. where we're going. There are plenty of people I, I disagree with, though. Yeah, and I guess, but but the thing is that we we have we also have people who who like uh, are on the internet twenty four seven hours a day, twenty four seven, and then like they watch uh, YouTube's, and most of it are just false information, you know. Especially when uh, I would uh, when you would talk about, for example, like like this uh, fake news machine called Quanon. I, I, I don't know. I think that's what it's called. Oh, I, I believe it's pronounced QAnon oh, yeah, is how they're usually Q-Anon. pronouncing it. Okay. Like some um, a, a fake ma- machine, a fake news machine like that, that affects so many people and millions who believe it just because, it, and, and and the thing is, they it only uh, requires a, like a little amount of crit- critical thinking to actually see through the, through the BS. And um, I don't know what you think about this. But I see a world where, well, um, with too much information uh, and less less uh, skill in order to actually maneuver through this. So I I guess that when we increase education, we could arm all citizens amidst um, cyber attacks like influences from China or Russia, who could actually manipulate people through ads and. And fake news. So, so I think critical thinking, education, more knowledge is is essential. Still, even in this uh, type of world that we have, where technology is great. Well, so so let's look at it this way, right? So let's look at it like a net value of big things we get wrong. Okay. So if we were to go back to, we'll say the 1600s, most people in Europe were of the opinion that Africa was full of people who would never amount to anything and that they were all racially inferior to Europeans. That's 1600s, it's not a long time ago, okay? So as little as 250 years ago in the United States, 
we were totally okay owning black slaves for nothing other than the fact that they were black. Now, in terms of things that a little bit of critical thinking should be able to get us past, that was huge and much more widely accepted than any conspiracy theory that QAnon is currently you know, selling. You, you can look at things like, oh, the flat earthers. They, they're not hurting anyone. They're dumb. They're wrong. But I don't care. What's the damage? It's fine. I'm much more concerned with someone saying like, um, okay, like, uh, let's say we're going back to black people shouldn't be able to read. Well, you are hurting people. That's something I care about. But the, the world is flat. I, I believe what you want. This is not going to take up any of my time. And I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to censor anyone for that believe your dumb theory. We clearly have the evidence to show the contrary. Why, why would I care if you believe that? Now, QAnon is an interesting one for me. What I do believe is that throughout history, every person of power has been corrupted. They just, they just are. When nobody tells you no anymore, typically you do whatever you want. That's not an absolute statement. I guess I shouldn't be so absolute about it. But typically speaking, People with power abuse that power. We know that. Now, in terms of um, QAnon, they are making lots of claims about pedophilia. Okay. Well, what do we know about pedophilia? Well, people in power often are pedophiles. And I don't think that's something you're born with. I think that's something that happens when people don't tell you no anymore and you get so desensitized to regular relations but you start to move into those areas that are taboo. Now, what kind of examples do we have? Well, usually they're far along a long time ago. The emperor Tiberius of Rome lived on an empire, like lived on an island where he had children shipped by boatloads to him. It, it was very open back then, and he could do whatever he wanted, and he could kill anyone who who said anything about it. So it was much more accepted at the time. Now we live in an age of secrecy and spies and everything is behind closed doors. And these people are saying that people in political power are being pedophiles. I believe that probably they are. Um, to what extent? I don't know. And I don't know what evidence they've had, but it wouldn't shock me, I'll say. And then we get things like Epstein and Epstein's Island. And you have Bill Clinton going there plenty of times. And I'm not shocked at all. And then when QAnon says, oh, it goes much deeper than that, I go, probably, but I don't know what evidence they're, they're bringing up. But for people to say it's a conspiracy theory, I'm going to dismiss it. I go, no, no, I don't want that information censored because they could be right. I don't know. But I'm perfectly fine to have that information in the open <clears throat> and people with more information and more time than I do can go and research its validity. And if they're able to compress what their findings are into a more easily digested piece, you know, piece that I can digest and it's sound and reasonable, then perhaps I will uh, consume it at that time. For right now, I just know there's an organization called QAnon and they have a lot of wild theories. Keep researching, that's okay, keep doing it. Don't, don't, don't censor them. Okay, cool. And uh, one last question because um, I think we've passed the hour limit now. And um, 
uh, it's been a great conversation with you, bro. And um, my question would be, um, being a Christian universalist, and you're also a libertarian, you know, um, what direction would you, let's say, um, every city, uh, if, if I were like um, fr- someone from Africa or Asia or Europe, you know, or South America or all around the world, uh, what uh, step should I take or direction should my life be where I could actually make a good change in the world that would actually matter for me and everybody else? I think, A, I always think that the best philosophy should start in the home. So the way you treat your wife, your children, your parents, uh, your cousins, your immediate family is the first thing. They are your biggest sphere of influence. And I'm a big fan of the idea that your five closest friends are an amalgamation of who you are as a person. So the company that you keep and how you treat those around you are going to be your biggest areas of influence. And I would say do right by them and do your best to create a world in which they would want to live in, those ones that you love and are so precious to you. I think that's a good place to start. And then also I would definitely highly recommend that book, um, All Shall Be Saved by Dr. David Bentley Hart. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much, Brandon, for uh, this conversation. It's, it has been awesome, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.